sleep. Thank you for making your way here each week. Fast asleep listeners are the best listeners. Our story today takes place in New York City, where not everything is always ideal. A young couple have chosen New York for their vacation destination, but as you've already figured out, not everything goes as planned. Now, what author would write in detail about maddening imperfections? Oh yeah, the beloved Shirley Jackson would. She gives us quite a long look at what she herself must have dealt with as a young mother, a wife, and a very successful writer in this tale. And the first imperfection she reveals about New York City is a plane crash into a skyscraper. No, not the very tragic World Trade Center. 66 years before that, a B-25 Mitchell bomber of the U.S. Army Air Force on a routine personal transport mission ignored zero visibility advice, turned right instead of left after passing the Chrysler building, and embedded itself into the north side of the Empire State Building. Did you know this? Between the 78th and 80th floors. It's true. 14 people were killed, including the three on board the aircraft. 24 others were injured, including, and I just had to include this, including a severely burned elevator operator whom first aid workers placed on another elevator whose cables broke. She fell 75 stories, and when they finally found her, she had ended up in the basement and suffered additionally a broken back, neck, and pelvis. <sighs> what was her reward? Well, she still holds the record for surviving the longest elevator fall. Oh yeah, Shirley always gives us something to think about. Now, for more Shirley Jackson, right here on Fast Asleep, you can scroll back for The Witch, Charles, like Mother used to make, got a letter from Jimmy today, The Demon Lover, Summer People, The Possibility of Evil. It does go on and on, doesn't it? Oh, and of course, The Lottery. This is all proof that we do love and respond to your requests. Don't forget that. Well, let's go on vacation and get into a few more New York imperfections. Tuck in, everybody, for Shirley Jackson's Pillar of Salt. For some reason, a tune was running through her head when she and her husband got on the train 
in New Hampshire for their trip to New York. They had not been to New York for nearly a year, but the tune was farther back than that. It was from the days when she was 15 or 16 and had never seen New York except in movies when the city was made up to her of penthouses filled with no coward people when the height and speed and luxury and gaiety that made up a city like New York were confused inextricably with the dullness of being 15 and beauty unreachable and far in the movies. What is that tune? She said to her husband and hummed it. It's from some old movie, I think. Mm, I know it, he said, and hummed it himself. I, I can't remember the words. He sat back comfortably. He had hung up their coats, put their suitcases on the rack, and had taken his magazine out. I'll think of it sooner or later, he said. She looked out the window first tasting it almost secretly, savoring the extreme pleasure of being on a moving train with nothing to do for six hours but read and nap and go into the dining car, going farther and farther every minute from the children, from the kitchen floor, with even the hills being incredibly left behind, changing into fields and trees, too far away from home to be daily. I love trains, she said, and her husband nodded sympathetically into his magazine. Two weeks ahead, two unbelievable weeks with the arrangements made, no further planning to do except perhaps what theaters or what restaurants. A friend with an apartment went on a convenient vacation. There was enough money in the bank to make a trip to New York compatible with new snowsuits for the children. There was the smoothness of unopposed arrangements. Once the initial obstacles had been overcome, as though when they had really made up their minds, nothing dared stop them. The baby's sore throat cleared up. The plumber came, finished his work in two days, and left. The dresses had been altered in time. The hardware store could be left safely once they had found the excuse of looking over new city products. New York had not burned down, had not been quarantined. Their friend had gone away according to schedule and Brad had the keys to the apartment in his pocket. Everyone knew where to reach everyone else. There was a list of plays not to miss and a list of items to look out for in the stores. Diapers, dress materials, fancy canned foods, tarnish-proof silverware boxes. And finally, the train was there. 
performing its function, pacing through the afternoon, carrying them legally and with determination to New York. Margaret looked curiously at her husband, inactive, in the middle of the afternoon, on a train, at the other fortunate people traveling, at the sunny country outside, looked again to make sure, and then opened her book. Uh, the tune was still in her head. She hummed it and heard her husband take it up softly as he turned a page in his magazine. In the dining car, she ate roast beef, as she would have done in a restaurant at home, reluctant to change over too quickly to the new tantalizing food of a vacation. She had ice cream for dessert, but became uneasy over her coffee because, well, they were due in New York in an hour, and she still had to put on her coat and hat, relishing every gesture. And Brad must take the suitcases down and put away the magazines. They stood at the end of the car for the interminable underground run, picking up their suitcases and putting them down again, moving restlessly inch by inch. The station was a momentary shelter, moving visitors gradually into a world of people and sound and light to prepare them for the blasting reality of the street outside. She saw it for a minute from the sidewalk before she was in a taxi, moving into the middle of it. And then, well, they were bewilderingly caught and carried on uptown and whirled out onto another sidewalk. And Brad paid the taxi driver and put his head back to look up at the apartment house. Oh, this is it, all right, he said, as though he had doubted the driver's ability to find a number so simply given. Upstairs in the elevator and... The key fit the door. They had never seen their friend's apartment before, but it was reasonably familiar. A friend moving from New Hampshire to New York carries private pictures of a home, uh, not erasable in a few years, and the apartment had enough of home in it to settle Brad immediately in the right chair and comfort her with instinctive trust of the linen and blankets. This is home for two weeks, Brad said and stretched. After the first few minutes, they both went to the windows automatically. New York was below, as arranged. And the houses across the street were apartment houses filled with unknown people Oh, it's wonderful, she said. There were cars down there, and people, and the noise was there. I'm so happy, 
she said, and kissed her husband. They went sightseeing the first day. They had breakfast in an automat and went to the top of the Empire State Building. Well, they got it all fixed up now, Brad said at the top. I wonder just where that plane hit. They tried to peer down on all four sides, but were embarrassed about asking. Well, after all, she said reasonably, giggling a little in a corner, if something of mine got broken, I wouldn't want people poking around asking to see the pieces. Oh, if you owned the Empire State Building, you wouldn't care, Brad said. They traveled only in taxis the first few days, and one taxi had a door held on with a piece of string. They pointed to it and laughed silently at each other. And on about the third day, the taxi they were riding in got a flat tire on Broadway, and they had to get out and find another. Oh, we've only got 11 days left, she said one day. And then, seemingly minutes later, we've already been here six days. They had got in touch with friends they had expected to get in touch with. Oh, they were going to a Long Island summer home for a weekend. It looks pretty dreadful right now, their hostess said cheerfully over the phone. And we're leaving in a week ourselves, but I'd never forgive you if you didn't see it once while you were here. The weather had been fair, but cool, with a definite autumn awareness and the clothes in the store windows were dark and already hinting at furs and velvets. She wore her coat every day and suits most of the time. The light dresses she had brought were hanging in the closet in the apartment and she was thinking now of getting a sweater in one of the big stores. Something impractical for New Hampshire but probably good for Long Island. I have to do some shopping, at least one day, she said to Brad, and he groaned. Oh, don't make me carry packages, he said. Oh, you aren't up to a good day's shopping, she told him. Not after all this walking around you've been doing. Why don't you go to a movie or something? I want to do some shopping myself, he said mysteriously. Perhaps he was talking about her Christmas present. She had thought vaguely of getting such things done in New York. Oh, the children would be pleased with novelties from the city, toys not seen in their home stores. At any rate, she said, you'll probably be able to get to your wholesalers at last. They were on their way to visit another friend who had found a place to live by a miracle and warned them, consequently, not to quarrel with the appearance of the building or the stairs or the neighborhood. All three were bad, and the stairs were three flights, narrow and dark. 
but there was a place to live at the top. Their friend had not been in New York long, but he lived by himself in two rooms and had easily caught the mania for slim tables and low bookcases, which made his rooms look too large for the furniture in some places and too cramped and uncomfortable in others. Oh, what a lovely place, she said when she came in and then was sorry when her host said, someday this damn situation will let up and I'll be able to settle down in a really decent place. There were other people there. They sat and talked companionably about the same subjects then current in New Hampshire, but they drank more than they would have at home and it left them strangely unaffected. Their voices were louder and their words more extravagant. Their gestures, on the other hand, were smaller and they moved a finger where in New Hampshire, oh, they would have waved an arm. Margaret said frequently, oh, we're just staying here for a couple of weeks on vacation. And she said, it's wonderful, so exciting. And she said, we were terribly lucky. This friend went out of town just at the right. Finally, the room was very full and noisy, and she went into a corner near a window to catch her breath. The window had been opened and shut all evening, depending on whether the person standing next to it had both hands free, and now it was shut with the clear sky outside. Someone came and stood next to her, and she said, Oh, listen to the noise outside. It's as bad as it is inside. He said, Oh, in a neighborhood like this, someone's always getting killed. She frowned. It sounds different than before. I mean, there's a different sound to it. Alcoholics, he said. Drunks in the streets. Fighting going on across the way. He wandered away, carrying his drink. She opened the window and leaned out. And there were people hanging out of the windows across the way, shouting and people standing in the street, looking up and shouting. And from across the way, she heard clearly, Lady! Lady! They must mean me, she thought. Oh, they're all looking this way. She leaned out farther, and the voices shouted incoherently, but somehow making an audible hole. Lady, your house is on fire! Lady! Lady! She closed the window firmly and turned around to the other people in the room, raising her voice a little. Uh, listen, she said. They're saying the house is on fire. 
Oh, she was desperately afraid of their laughing at her, of looking like a fool, while Brad across the room looked at her, blushing. She said again, The house is on fire? And added, They say, for fear of sounding too vehement. The people nearest to her turned and someone said, She says the house is on fire. She wanted to get to Brad and couldn't see him. Her host was not in sight either, and the people all around were strangers. They don't listen to me, she thought. I might as well not be here. And she went to the outside door and opened it. Well, there was no smoke, no flame, but she was telling herself, I might as well not be here, so she abandoned Brad in panic and ran without her hat and coat down the stairs, carrying a glass in one hand and a package of matches in the other. Oh, the stairs were insanely long, and at least they were clear and safe, and she opened the street door and ran out. A man caught her arm and said, Everyone out of the house? And she said, No, Brad's still there. Stay with us. We'll be right back. said, everyone out of the house? And she said, no, Brad's still there. The fire engines swept around the corner with people leaning out of the windows watching them and the man holding her arm said, it's down there and left her. The fire was two houses away where they could see the flames behind the top windows and smoke against the night sky, but in ten minutes it was finished, and the fire engines pulled away with an air of martyrdom for hauling out all their equipment to put out a ten-minute fire. She went back upstairs slowly and with embarrassment and found Brad and took him home. I was so frightened, she said to him when they were safely in bed. I lost my head completely. Well, you should have tried to find someone, he said. Well, they wouldn't listen, she insisted. I kept telling them and they wouldn't listen and then I thought I must have been mistaken. I had some idea of going down to see what was going on. Well, lucky it was no worse, Brad said sleepily. I felt trapped, she said. High up in that old building with a fire, oh, it's like a nightmare, and in a strange city. Well, it is all over now.
Brad said. The same faint feeling of insecurity tagged her the next day. She went shopping alone and Brad went off to see hardware after all. She got on a bus to go downtown. Oh, and the bus was too full to move when it came time for her to get out. Wedged, standing in the aisle, she said, out, please, and excuse me. And by the time she was loose and near the door, the bus had started again and well, she got off a stop beyond. No one listens to me, she said to herself. Maybe it's because I'm too polite. In the stores, the prices were all too high and the sweaters looked disarmingly like New Hampshire ones. The toys for the children filled her with dismay. They were so obviously for New York children. Hideous little parodies of adult life. Cash registers, tiny push carts with imitation fruit, telephones that really worked. As if there weren't enough phones in New York that really worked. Miniature milk bottles in a carrying case. Oh, we get our milk from cows, Margaret told the sales girl. My children wouldn't know what these were. She was exaggerating and felt guilty for a minute, but no one was around to catch her. She had a picture of small children in the city, dressed like their parents, following along with a miniature mechanical civilization, toy cash registers in larger and larger sizes that eased them into the real thing. Millions of clattering, jerking, small imitations that prepared them nicely for taking over the large, useless toys their parents lived by. She bought a pair of skis for her son, which she knew would be inadequate for New Hampshire snow, and a wagon for her daughter, inferior to the one Brad could make at home in an hour, ignoring the toy mailboxes, the small phonographs with special records, the kitty cosmetics, she left the store and started home. She was frankly afraid by now to take a bus. She stood on the corner and waited for a taxi. Glancing down at her feet, she saw a dime on the sidewalk and tried to pick it up, but oh, there were too many people for her to bend down, and she was afraid to shove to make room for fear of being stared at. She put her foot on the dime, oh, and then saw a quarter near it, and put her other foot on the quarter. Someone had dropped a pocketbook, she thought, stepping quickly to make it look natural, and then she saw another dime and another nickel and a third dime in the gutter. People were passing her back and forth all the time, rushing, pushing against her, not looking at her, and she was afraid to get down and start gathering up the money. Other people saw it and went past, and she realized that no one was going to pick it up. 
they were all embarrassed or in too much of a hurry or too crowded. A taxi stopped to let someone off and she hailed it. She lifted her feet off the dime and the quarter and left them there when she got into the taxi. This taxi went slowly and bumped as it went. And she had begun to notice that the gradual decay was not peculiar to the taxis. The buses were cracking open in unimportant seams. The leather seats broken and stained. The buildings were going too. In one of the nicest stores, there had been a great gaping hole in the tiled foyer, and you walked around it. Corners of the buildings seemed to be crumbling away into a fine dust that drifted downward. The granite was eroding unnoticed. Every window she saw on her way uptown seemed to be broken. Perhaps every street corner was peppered with small change. The people were moving faster than ever before. A girl in a red hat appeared at the upper side of the taxi window and was gone beyond the lower side before you could see the hat. Store windows were so terribly bright because you only caught them for a fraction of a second. The people seemed hurled on in a frantic action that made every hour 45 minutes long. Every day, nine hours. Every year, 14 days. Food was so elusively fast, eaten in such a hurry, that you were always hungry, always speeding to a new meal with new people. Everything was imperceptibly quicker every minute. She stepped into the taxi on one side and stepped out the other side at her home. She pressed the fifth floor button on the elevator and was coming down again, bathed and dressed and ready for dinner with Brad. They went out for dinner and were coming in again, hungry and hurrying to bed in order to get to breakfast with lunch beyond. They had been in New York nine days. Tomorrow was Saturday and they were going to Long Island, coming home Sunday and then Wednesday, they were going home, really home. By the time she had thought of it, they were on the train to Long Island. The train was broken, the seats torn, and the floor dirty. One of the doors wouldn't open, and the windows wouldn't shut. Passing through the outskirts of the city, she thought, it's as though Everything were traveling so fast that the solid stuff couldn't stand it and were going to pieces under the strain, cornices blowing off and windows caving in. 
She knew she was afraid to say it, truly. Afraid to face the knowledge that it was a voluntary, neck-breaking speed, a deliberate whirling faster and faster to end in destruction. On Long Island, their hostess led them into a new piece of New York, a house filled with New York furniture as though on rubber bands, pulled this far, stretched taut, and ready to snap back to the city, to an apartment, as soon as the door was opened and the lease paid, fully paid, had expired. Oh, we've had this place every year for simply ages, their hostess said. Otherwise, we couldn't have gotten it. Possibly this year. Well, it's an awfully nice place, Brad said. I'm surprised you don't live here all year round. Oh, well, got to get back to the city sometime, their hostess said and laughed. Well, not much like New Hampshire, Brad said. He was beginning to be a little homesick, Margaret thought. He wants to yell just once. Since the fire scare, she was apprehensive about large groups of people gathering together. When friends began to drop in after dinner, she waited for a while, telling herself they were on the ground floor or she could run right outside. All the windows were open. Then she excused herself and went to bed. When Brad came to bed much later, she woke up and he said irritably, we've been playing anagrams. Ugh, such crazy people. She said sleepily, did you win? And fell asleep before he told her. The next morning, she and Brad went for a walk while their host and hostess read the Sunday papers. If you turn to the right, just outside the door, their hostess said encouragingly, and walk about three blocks down, you'll come to our beach. What do they want with our beach? Their host said. It's too damn cold to do anything down there. Well, they can look at the water, their hostess said. They walked down to the beach. At this time of year, it was bare and windswept, yet still nodding hideously under the traces of its summer plumage, as though it thought itself warmingly inviting. There were occupied houses on the way there, for instance, and a lonely lunch stand was open, bravely advertising hot dogs and root beer, the man in the lunch stand watched them go by, his face cold and unsympathetic. They walked far past him, out of sight of houses, onto a stretch of gray pebbled sand that lay between the gray water on one side and the gray pebbled sand dunes on the other. Oh, imagine going swimming here, she said with a shiver. 
The beach pleased her. It was oddly familiar and reassuring. And at the same time that she realized this, the little tune came back to her, bringing a double recollection. The beach was the one where she had lived in imagination, writing for herself dreary, love-broken stories, where the heroine walked beside the wild waves. The little tune was the symbol of the golden world she escaped into to avoid the everyday dreariness that drove her into writing depressing stories about the beach. <laughs> she laughed out loud. And Brad said, what on earth so funny about this godforsaken landscape? I, I was just thinking how far away from the city it seems, she said falsely. The sky and the water and the sand were gray enough to make it feel like late afternoon instead of mid-morning. She was tired and wanted to go back. But Brad said suddenly, whoa, look at that. And she turned and saw a girl running down over the dunes, carrying her hat and her hair flying behind her. Only way to get warm on a day like this, Brad remarked. But Margaret said, she looks frightened. The girl saw them and came toward them, slowing down as she approached. She was eager to reach them, but when she came within speaking distance, the familiar embarrassment, the not wanting to look like a fool, made her hesitate and look from one to the other of them uncomfortably. Do you know where I can find a policeman? She asked, finally. Brad looked up and down the bare, rocky beach and said solemnly, There don't seem to be any around. Is there something we can do? No, oh, I don't think so, the girl said. I really need a policeman. Oh, they go to the police for everything, Margaret thought. These people, these New York people, it's as though they have selected a section of the population to act as problem solvers, and so no matter what they want, they look for a policeman. Be glad to help you if we can, Brad said. The girl hesitated again. Well, if you must know, she said crossly, there's a leg up there. Well, they waited politely for the girl to explain, but she only said, oh, come on then, and waved to them to follow her. She led them over the dunes to a spot near a small inlet where the dunes gave way abruptly to an intruding head of water. A leg was lying on the sand near the water and the girl gestured at it and said, there, as though it were her own property and they had insisted on having a share. They walked over to it and Brad bent down gingerly. Uh, it's a leg, all right, he said. It looked like part of a wax dummy, a death white, 
wax leg neatly cut off at top thigh and again just above the ankle, bent comfortably at the knee and resting on the sand. It's real, Brad said, his voice slightly different. You're right about that policeman. They walked together to the lunch stand, and the man listened unenthusiastically while Brad called the police. When the police came, they all walked out again to where the leg was lying, and Brad gave the police their names and addresses and then said, Is it all right to go on home? What the hell you want to hang around for? The policeman inquired with heavy humor. You waiting for the rest of him? They went back to their host and hostess, talking about the leg, and their host apologized as though he had been guilty of a breach of taste in allowing his guests to come on a human leg. Their hostess said with interest, there was an arm washed up in Bensonhurst. I've been reading about it. Mm, one of these killings, the host said. Upstairs, Margaret said abruptly, I suppose it starts to happen first in the suburbs. And when Brad said, what starts to happen? She said, hysterically, people starting to come apart. In order to reassure their host and hostess about their minding the leg, they stayed until the last afternoon train to New York. Back in their apartment again, it seemed to Margaret that the marble in the house lobby had begun to age a little. Even in two days, there were new perceptible cracks. The elevator seemed a little rusty and there was a fine film of dust over everything in the apartment. They went to bed feeling uncomfortable. And the next morning, Margaret said immediately, I'm going to stay in today. You're not upset about yesterday, are you? Oh, not a bit, Margaret said. I just want to stay in and rest. After some discussion, Brad decided to go off again by himself. He still had people it was important to see and places he must go in the few days they had left. After breakfast in the automat, Margaret came back alone to the apartment. Hmm. She was carrying the mystery story she had bought on the way. She hung up her coat and hat and sat down by the window with the noise and the people far below looking out at the sky where it was gray beyond the houses across the street. I'm not going to worry about it, she said to herself. No sense thinking all the time about things like that. Spoil your vacation and Brad's too. No sense worrying. When people get ideas like that and, and, and then they worry about them. 
Mm, the nasty little tune was running through her head again with its burden of suavity and expensive perfume. The houses across the street were silent and perhaps unoccupied at this time of day. She let her eyes move with the rhythm of the tune from window to window along one floor. By gliding quickly across two windows, she could make one line of the tune fit one floor of the windows. And then a quick breath and drop down to the next floor. It had the same number of windows and the tune had the same number of beats. And then the next floor and the next. Oh, she stopped suddenly. And it seemed to her that the window sill she had just passed had soundlessly crumpled and fallen into fine sand. When she looked back, oh, it was there, as before. But then it seemed to be the windowsill above and to the right, and finally, a corner of the roof. Now, no sense worrying, she told herself, forcing her eyes down to the street. Stop thinking about things all the time. Looking down at the street for long made her dizzy. And she stood up and went into the small bedroom of the apartment. She had made the bed before going out to breakfast like any good housewife, but now she deliberately took it apart, stripping the blankets and sheets off one by one. And then she made it again, taking a long time over the corners, and smoothing out every wrinkle. Oh, that's done, she said when she was through and went back to the window. When she looked across the street, the tune started again. Window to window. Sills dissolving and falling downward. She leaned forward and looked down at her own window something she'd never thought of before, down to the sill. It was partly eaten away. When she touched the stone, a few crumbs rolled off and fell. It was 11 o'clock. Brad was looking at blowtorches by now and would not be back before one, if even then. She thought of writing a letter home but the impulse left her before she found paper and pen. And then it occurred to her that she might take a nap, a thing she had never done in the morning in her life. And she went in and laid down on the bed, lying down. She felt the building shaking. No sense worrying, she told herself again, as though it were a charm against witches, and got up and found her coat and hat and put them on. I'll just get some cigarettes and uh, some letter paper, she thought. Just run down to the corner. Panic caught her going down in the elevator. It went too fast, and when she stepped out in the lobby, it was only the people standing around who kept her from running. As it was, she went quickly out of the building and into the street. For a minute, she hesitated, 
wanting to go back. Oh, the cars were going past so rapidly, the people hurrying as always. But the panic of the elevator drove her on, finally. She went to the corner, and following the people flying along ahead, she ran out into the street to hear a horn almost overhead and a shout from behind her and the noise of brakes. Oh, she ran blindly on and reached to the other side where she stopped and looked around. The truck was going on its appointed way around the corner. The people going past on either side of her, parting to go around her where she stood. Uh, no one even noticed me, she thought with reassurance. Everyone who saw me has gone by long ago. She went into the drugstore ahead of her and asked the man for cigarettes. The apartment now seemed safer to her than the street. She could walk up the stairs. Coming out of the store and walking to the corner, she kept as close to the buildings as possible, refusing to give way to the rightful traffic coming out of the doorways. On the corner, she looked carefully at the light. It was green, but it looked as though it were going to change. Always safer to wait, she thought. Don't want to walk into another truck. People pushed past her, and some were caught in the middle of the street when the light changed. One woman, more cowardly than the rest, turned and ran back to the curb, but the others stood in the middle of the street, leaning forward and then backward, according to the traffic moving past them on both sides. One got to the farther curb in a brief break in the line of cars. The others were a fraction of a second too late and waited. Then the light changed again, and as the cars slowed down, Margaret put a foot on the street to go, but a taxi swinging wildly around her corner frightened her back, and she stood on the curb again. By the time the taxi had gone, the light was due to change again, and she thought, I can wait once more. No sense getting caught out in the middle. A man beside her tapped his foot impatiently for the light to change back. Two girls came past her and walked out into the street a few steps to wait, moving back a little when cars came too close, talking busily all the time. Now I ought to stay right with them, Margaret thought, but then they moved back against her and the light changed and the man next to her charged into the street and the two girls in front waited a minute and then moved slowly on still talking, and Margaret started to follow and then decided to wait. A crowd of people formed around her. Suddenly, they had come off a bus and were crossing here, and she had a sudden feeling of being jammed in the center and forced out into the street when all of them moved as one with the light changing. She elbowed her way desperately out of the crowd and went off to lean against a building and wait 
it seemed to her that people passing were beginning to look at her. Oh dear. What do they think of me? She wondered and stood up straight as though she were waiting for someone. She looked at her watch and frowned and then thought, oh, what a fool I must look like. No one here ever saw me before. Oh, they all go by too fast. She went back to the curb again, but the green light was changing to red, and she thought, well, I'll, I'll go back to the drugstore and have a Coke. No sense going back to that apartment. A man looked at her, unsurprised, in the drugstore, and she sat and ordered a Coke. But suddenly, as she was drinking it, the panic caught her again. And she thought of the people who had been with her when she first started to cross the street, blocks away by now, having tried and made perhaps a dozen lights while she had hesitated at the first. People by now a mile or so downtown because they had been going steadily while she had been trying to gather her courage. She paid the man quickly, restrained an impulse to say that there was nothing wrong with the Coke. She just had to get back, that was all. And she hurried down to the corner again. The minute the light changes, she told herself firmly, there's no sense. The light changed before she was ready. And in the minute before she collected herself, traffic turning the corner overwhelmed her and she shrank back against the curb. She looked longingly at the cigar store on the opposite corner with her apartment house beyond. She wondered, how did people ever manage to get there? And knew that by wondering, by admitting a doubt, she was lost. The light changed, and she looked at it with hatred. A dumb thing, turning back and forth, back and forth, with no purpose and no meaning. Looking to either side of her slyly to see if anyone were watching, she stepped quietly backward. One step two, until she was well away from the curb. Back in the drugstore, again, she waited for some sign of recognition from the clerk and saw none. He regarded her with the same apathy as he had the first time. He gestured, without interest, at the telephone. He doesn't care, she thought. It doesn't matter to him who I call. She had no time to feel like a fool because they answered the phone immediately and agreeably and found him right away. When he answered the phone, his voice sounding surprised and matter-of-fact, she could only say miserably, I'm in the drugstore on the corner 
come and get me. What? What's the matter? Oh, he was not anxious to come. Please, come and get me, she said into the black mouthpiece that might or might not tell him. Please, come and get me, Brad. Please. Good night.